what if I've got a goofy smile on my face is because, you know, that's how I know Paul. Uh, he's always interesting, insightful, biblical, and funny at the same time. The reason I try to tell a lot of jokes is not because I want to be funny. I like to laugh. I love laughing. So I remember being with Paul, trying to like egg him on to tell jokes because it was so funny. Um, he's one of those guys that I first met Paul, I think when he was 15 or 16 years old. And he was like 15 going on 35, you know? <laughs> so serious, so grave, so intent on serving the Lord. And I was like, relax, brother, you know? Let's have some fun. But he was just so like gung-ho for the Lord. And when he came to Long Beach, I had no idea that he, he came to study the Bible with me. I really didn't. So I put him in a Bible study group with someone else. <laughs> and he was kind of discouraged for a little bit, but I figured it out, so... Wonderful time, wonderful times, really, studying the Word together with Paul. I lived with him for a few years, and uh, I went to uh, missions to Japan together. We ministered the gospel together. We ministered at Long Beach State together. And uh, I remember around 95, 96, when I was making those right turns in theology, I left uh, our parachurch, and really, I was really by myself, because I was seeking to commit to the Word of God and follow, follow the Scriptures and follow God's will in every way. And I remember feeling so alone. Like, people all around me had no idea what I was doing. They couldn't understand why I was so, you know, huffing and puffing about Scripture and theology and doctrine. No one got it except for Paul. I remember Paul le- left a voicemail on my machine, a message on my machine, like a five-minute message. Uh, just... Uh, <laughs> I was like, wow, Paul's long message, but just affirming um, just scripture, affirming right theology, affirming even MacArthur's ministry in in a master's seminary. And I remember being so encouraged to know that there was another brother who uh, shared the same heart, same conviction, same same mind, and all these things. And to see you, um, it was a long membership process, I think a five year membership process for Paul, but to see you at Cornerstone Paul and to go together. It thrills my heart. So, hope that you continue to grow in the Lord, but you will not lose your humor. Just keep at it, brother, and keep your pastor laughing. That is the will of the Lord. Well, uh, I don't know about, I heard from several of you and read from several of you that, that there's a bug going around and several of you are sick this week. Isn't that true? All right, I've heard several of you. I was sick this week. And I was like wiped out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and all I could think of was, who gave me this cold? <laughs> who was it at Cornerstone? I was going down the list. Guys I talked to, I shook hands with, you know, played sports with, and I narrowed it down to three. I'll be talking to you after service. But it was a joyful time studying John 17. Let's get to it. Remember verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, simple outline, Jesus prays for the apostles. And then verses 20 to the end of the chapter, our Lord prays for us. He's praying for you and I. But the section that we're on is when he is praying for the 11 apostles. And he has two simple prayers and verses uh, 6 through 19, really, his petition to God for the behalf of these men are just two things. Keep and sanctify. Keep and sanctify. And last week we looked at the first prayer, keep, where Christ prayed for them. Father, keep these men. 
while I was on earth. I kept them. I did not lose a single one except Judas, the son of perdition. Why? Because the scripture would be fulfilled. It was prophesied in the scriptures that the one, a man who shared the bread with me, shared bread with me, would betray me. And he was lost, but that was prophesied. Except for him, I kept them, I guarded them. Father, I am now leaving, therefore I entrust them into your hands. Oh Father, keep them in your name. The whole world has rejected my revelation of your glory. My revelation of your name. Except for these 11 men, they received a revelation of God. Please keep them in your name. The second prayer is found in verse 17. And that is Christ's prayer that they might be sanctified. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And just on this prayer alone, it might take us at least two, three, four sermons. Just on this prayer alone. For me, it is such a privilege for me to study John 17, 17. Such a joy in my heart that we get to study this verse together as a church. Um, when, we, when we started this adventure of studying the Gospel of John, I mean, several years ago, three, four years ago, there were some jugular passages that we knew that were coming that we were looking forward to. John 3.16, right? Uh, John 9.25, the blind man's testimony. John 10, the good shepherd. John 11, Lazarus. John 13, Christ washing the feet of the disciples. John 14 through 17, the upper room discourse. And a verse that was near and dear to my heart, as is to many of you, is John 17, 17. And we quote this often in the life of our church, Christ's prayer for our sanctification. And to know that we are finally here this morning, we finally arrived at this verse, and we are able to spend a bulk of our time in the next several weeks to study this prayer, it is Really, my joy and our joy, it is our privilege that God has granted to us. We are together corporately, face to face, with the great New Testament doctrine of sanctification. It is a great doctrine. It is a precious doctrine. It is doctrine that the Lord Himself gives to, has given to us. If you don't know, if you've forgotten... This is an important purpose of our salvation. This is one of the key goals of our salvation. 1 Corinthians 1-2 Paul said to the church of God in Corinth, to those who are set apart in Christ and called to be holy. Called to be holy. This is why we were saved. To be sanctified. To be holy. 2 Timothy 1-8-9 Paul tells Timothy, Do not be ashamed of our Lord, nor me, or His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God, who saved us, and He called us to a holy life. Timothy, God did two things. He saved us, and in saving us, He called us to a certain kind of life. A life of holiness, a life of purity, a life that is separate from this sinful world. Ephesians 1.4 God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in Him. 1 Thessalonians 4.7 God did not call us. He didn't 
call us. We're studying in our family, in our children's Bible, where and, and Lazarus. And I was telling Elizabeth and, and Emma. Uh, only Elizabeth was listening, though. Uh, how God, Christ called Lazarus, and Lazarus was dead. He couldn't listen. He couldn't hear Jesus. But he came out of the grave after four days. He's been dead. He comes out of the grave, and he and he's alive. How did that happen, Elizabeth? It's because Jesus is God, and when He calls a man, it is an efficacious call. It is a powerful call. It is a call that is a command that must be obeyed. And even someone who is dead cannot hear. It's, it's, it's prompted to obey because Christ called. And that's what happened to us. God called us when we were dead. We didn't hear Him, but by His calling, He gave us life. And He brought us to Himself. And He called us for what purpose? Not to live an impure life, now that we're alive. But First Thessalonians 4, 7, He called us so that we might live a pure life. Not only that, it is clear from Scripture that this is God's will for us. This is God's will. You know, we wonder about what is God's will for me? What's God's destiny for me? What does God want for me? How is God leading me? Where should I go? What should I do? Well, First Thessalonians 4, 3 says it explicitly clear. This is the will of God. This is God's will. Your sanctification. My sanctification. That we abstain from sexual immorality. It's clear. This is God's will. That is why Christ prays for our sanctification. This is God's aim. Therefore, it must be ours. But how we are so prone to forget this, are we not? How... We are so prone to be neglectful of the simple truth that God's name for us is our holiness. Professor Pettigrew came maybe a year ago and gave us a simple sermon with simple outlines and one point that he made I will never forget. He said that God seeks not our happiness, but what? Everyone. Holiness. God exists not to make us happy, God is not there to, to give us every whim and, and request that we give to Him so that we would be happy and comfortable and experience pleasure. No, God is there and His desire is our holiness, not happiness. It changes everything. It reorients our whole perspective of our lives, our families, our, our occupation, our careers, our studies, our relationships. When we understand the simple truth that God's aim and desire for us is holiness. It's purity, it's separateness. Christ prays this for us because this is the greatest need of your life and the greatest need of my life. Can you honestly say that? Can you honestly, with total integrity of heart, with complete sincerity, if someone were to ask you, if I were to ask you, what is the greatest need of your life? How would you answer? Would you say, my greatest need is finishing school, getting a job, getting married, right? having a good career, buying a new car, having a house, right? You know, having this or having that. That's, can you honestly say, you know what? All those things are temporal. 
all those things are fleeting, and all those things do not truly give happiness. My greatest need in my life is holiness. At the point you can honestly say that, that's when you really start to grow, really start to mature in Christ. That's when the journey to, to sanctification really begins, when we can say with all honesty that the greatest need I have in my life is holiness. Here in John 17, 17, we, see, we have a beautiful picture drawn for us by the Apostle John. We have a picture of Jesus looking up to heaven with his eyes focused on the Father, with his heart pouring out to the apostles. And he's verbalizing this prayer. He doesn't pray it privately. He wants the apostles to hear it. He wants John to record it. He wants us to read it. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to live it out. He wants us to see Him, hear Him, pray this on our behalf. Hope that impresses you as it impresses me. Hope that it moves you as it moves me. Think about it. If... if you were to hear that your mom's praying for you, your dad's praying for you, and you talk to your flock shepherd, your flock shepherd said, you know what, I spent 30 minutes this week praying for you on my knees, thinking of you, praying for you. Would that move your heart? Let's say you're walking across your living room and you see your mom on her knees, and you, see, you hear her pray, and she's praying for you by name. Would that move your heart? Right? You hear your flock shepherd, your pastor, your elder, and he is praying for you by name. Would that move your heart? Well, how much more, as we consider John 17, we hear Christ praying. And who is He praying for? He is praying for us. And what is He praying for us in our behalf? He is not praying for our comfort. He is not praying for our pleasure. He is not praying for any temporal need that might be meant for us, that we think that, that we need. No, He prays for our sanctification does that impress you? Does that move, move your heart and cause you to see the seriousness of this need in our lives? This truly tells us how important this is to God and to us. Let me ask you, what are some things that, God, what are some things that you see God doing in your life? What are some things beyond your control what are things that are happening? Trials I'm talking about. Hard, hardships, difficulties. What challenges are in your life currently? Right? Maybe it might be some relationship issues in the family or friends. Maybe financial issues. Maybe it's uh, you know, uh, problems at work. Car problems. Right? Health problems. Or maybe you're trying to follow the Lord. You're earnestly seeking seek to to serve Him, and yet you're bearing little fruit. You, you seem not to be making progress. You seem to be going one step forward and two steps back. You see yourselves being ostracized by your friends, being, being uh, set apart by your peers, and experiencing loneliness and being isolated. And you ask, God, why is this happening to me? Why are all these things, things are not working out? is because God is trying to squeeze out holiness out of your life and out of my life, and He's using life coupled with the Word of God 
based on the Word of God to mold holiness in us. Turn with me to Hebrews 12.5. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Trials in life, whatever heartaches, whatever pains you're experiencing, it's not coincidence. It's not happenstance. It's not chance. God is teaching us, training us, correcting us, and because of our stubbornness, He's even disciplining some of us to make us more holy. Hebrews 12.5 Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So forgetfulness causes a lot of unnecessary problems and heartaches. Sometimes our greatest need is not to learn new truths, but our need is to remember what we already know. Remember what we have already learned. The writer says, Have you forgotten that God is treating you as sons? Why are you spurning God's discipline? Why are you running away from trial? Trying to avoid difficulties? Why are you running away from responsibility? Running away from ministry and serving Christ? Have you forgotten that when you face trials in life and in serving the Lord, God is treating you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not think of it as a trivial thing. Do not take it lightly. Do not harden your heart towards God's commands, God's discipline. Do not, uh, neg- do not neglect to, to give attention to uh, God's Word and God's work. Do not complain and grumble when God is molding you as a potter with His clay. We often do that in our family when we try to, to, to teach our daughters and, and train them and even discipline them. It's hard sometimes to get their attention, to even get uh, uh, our eyes to meet, to get them to open their hearts, to understand what we're saying. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Do not take God's discipline lightly, nor, on the other hand, be weary when reproved by Him. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't take it too seriously. Don't, like, be overdramatic where... Oh, God's forsaking me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Band of evil men have encircled me. Right? Like, their dogs have circled me. They're tearing my clothes. I mean, don't be overdramatic where you feel you're, you're almost become weary. You want to give up. You want to quit. And you feel overwhelmed by discipline. It's too much for you when it is, when it is not. No. The writer of Hebrews says, God's discipline of us proves to us that He loves us as His children. Simple truth, isn't it? When we, are, when we suffer for being children of God, when we suffer for righteousness, when we suffer in this world and we endure it unto the Lord, remember the Lord disciplines, verse 6, the one He loves. Verse 7, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? In fact, if you are left without discipline, you are illegitimate children and are not sons. This is the proof that you are adopted into God's family. In fact, if God is not uh, disciplining you, if God is not squeezing you, then that means God doesn't love you as His own child. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And verse 10, here is God's purpose in disciplining us. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. And there's the purpose, that we may share His holiness. Share His holiness. This is how important it is for God. It might not, holiness might not be important for us. And we say, God, it's okay. You know, what's a little sinfulness? What's a little compromise? You know, come on, let's not get overworked here. Are we going to be in you know, one of those Bible churches that are so intense about Christian things? God, just let it go. It's not that important. God says, no. It's this important. This is how important it is. I'm teaching you. I'm correcting you, I'm rebuking you, and I'll discipline you to show you how important it is that we share holiness, that you grow in holiness as I am holy. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So before we even get into the study of John 17, 17, I hope we see the gravity of Christ's prayer, the, the, the importance of it, even just the timing of it should cause us to, to perk up to the importance that on the eve of His death, He has two prayers for us, and one of them, His last one, second one, second and last one is, for our sanctification. Now, one more thing before we go to the actual study of verse 17. Uh, let's look at what Jesus did not pray for. What Jesus did not pray for. Sometimes, looking at the negative helps us to see the positive. What Jesus did not pray for. He, did not, he is not here praying for their salvation. He is not praying for their justification. There is a clear distinction and separation between salvation and sanctification. He said He has kept them. He did not lose them. He entrusts them to the Father. And John 10.29 says, No one can snatch them out of My Father's hand. The salvation of these believers and salvation of all true believers throughout history is secure in God's hands. Christ is not praying that, that they will not lose their salvation. He's not praying for their justification, but for their sanctification. Secondly, He's not praying that only some of His disciples are sanctified. No, He's praying for all of His disciples. Sanctification is not uh, something that committed Christians do. It's not for those who are radical for Christ or are disciples of Christ. It is not this idea where I'm just a you know, regular Christian. So for me, sanctification is an option. If later on, if I want to have a real close walk with God, if I want to experience God in a true way, then I'll consider sanctification. And at that time, I'll be a disciple of Christ. That's not what Christ prays here. Christ prays for all Christians. According to the scriptures, 
Scripture, every true believer in Christ, whether mature in the faith or young in the faith, whether he is a leader or a follower, whether old or young, is called to practical holiness, is called to be separate from the world and pure unto God. Thirdly, he is not praying for some special experience. He is not praying for some one-time event or occurrence that happens to a Christian post-faith. This idea of, I'm just waiting for God to zap me. You know? So Paul knows what I'm talking about, growing up in the charismatic you know, kind of environment. That's what I was waiting for for so many years as a young Christian. I was struggling in sin, and I had a cavalier attitude. And I saw these mature Christians. Well, it's because God zapped them, right? Because, you know, one night he went to a special prayer meeting and some you know, special pastor laid hands on him, or he heard a special sermon, or they sang the right song at the right moment when the lights were turned off, and he prayed the right prayer, and the, the orchestration of all those events caused his heart to grow, and yet a quantum leap in his maturity because of that event hasn't happened to me yet, so I can just kind of coast along and wait for God to zap me. That is not what Christ is praying for here. Fourthly, he is not praying for the world. I mean, obvious, right? But we need to understand this basic truth. He's not praying that the world would be sanctified. But then why are so many Christians intent on sanctifying this world? Why are so many Christians trying to sanctify non-believers? They do it two ways. They do it through uh, uh, some political means. They want to legislate morality. They want to make Christians into a political movement and, 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 and create laws and, and apply these laws to non-believers. They want to be parallel with the Taliban. They want to create a ministry of vice and virtue where people will go around with long sticks and if they're not immodest, they would whack them on their, on their legs. Or if, if people are, you know, not there on Sunday, they're working, they want to hit them. You know, if they're... Um, not, not obeying the Lord in some way. Non-believers, they want to legislate morality to non-Christians. That's one way. Another way is through uh, external religion. By imposing moralism through the name of Christianity rather than the gospel of Christ. Justification by faith alone through grace alone and Jesus Christ alone. Where they're trying to change the outer man but not the inner man. You know, no doubt, unbelievers living in sin dishonors God. There's no doubt about that. But as Christians, our concern is not to sanctify non-believers. Our concern as Christians is to sanctify ourselves. Sanctify Christians. Sanctify those within the church. Let me tell you a tale of two houses on my cul-de-sac, right? Tale of two houses on my cul-de-sac. There's one house on our block, several, like, working girls, you know, not working girls, you know, <laughs> several, we'll edit that later, several, you know, professional girls. They're single women, you know, they work as accountants, I don't know, they do something, right? So they make good money. One girl drives a Beamer, another girl drives another nice car, whatever. And, you know, we went and talked with them, and they attend church, professing Christians. Man, every other week, they're having parties, house parties at their house. 
and they're out there, you know, smoking and drinking and just, you know, guys and just like house party. It's just the whole house is shaking. And it upsets me. I don't know, it upsets me a little bit, but it upsets me greatly because they profess to be Christians. Right? They are church-going girls, and yet they live like that. It upsets me. I hop and puff, you know, in my room, studying, looking outside, looking at those guys, walking in and out. Man, I'm getting worked in my room, right? Okay, another house on, on the same side of the street of our cul-de-sac. Last night, apparently the parents were gone, so their son held a house party last night. Music was blurring till 2.30 in the morning. I kid you not. I mean, we live in a fun neighborhood. You guys got to come by and <laughs> hang out with us. I mean, I was bothered a bit by the music, you know, and I looked outside and he ran over to us and he apologized. He was telling us that several birthdays coincided. That's where the music is blaring. And I'm like, yeah, can you kind of keep it down? He said, yeah, but we have three birthday parties, you know, going. <laughs> she was sitting right next to me. I was a bit bothered by the music, but... I was not bothered at all that they were drinking, smoking, and partying it up in that house. Not at all. Why? Because they're not Christians. They're not believers. They're not in the church. So they can do all they want. They can live, do, you know, sin all they want because they're not in the church. Their sanctification is not my concern. Their salvation is my concern. I want to share, I, I, I want to share the gospel to them. And to the gospel so that they understand it's not moralism. It's not don't drink, don't smoke, don't play music till 2.30 in the morning, right? On a Saturday night or eat before church. That, that's not the way to the gospel. It's not the way to salvation. I understand the gospel that it's impossible for them to be saved. It's only hope through Christ. Their salvation is my concern, but not their sanctification. Right? But for believers, it's wholly different. And Christ is not praying for the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13 Paul told them, in my letter, I, I told you not to associate with sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. But I'm, I'm, what I meant by that was not to associate people who bear the name of brother in Christ. Do not even eat with such a one. So if someone professes to be a Christian and they're immoral, they're idolater, they're greedy and so forth, there was such a person, do not associate with, with them. But for those in the world, it's okay, associate with them, befriend them, go into their lives, be, be engaged in their lives that you might share the gospel. Paul concludes, For what do I have with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says, who are we? Why do we concern ourselves with those outside the church? God will take care of them. Our concern is our sanctification. So Christ is not praying for their salvation. He's not praying for only some of the disciples to be sanctified. He's not praying for some supernatural mystical event. He's not praying for the world. He's praying for the church. Now that we somewhat understand what Jesus didn't pray for, let's go to verse 17. What Jesus did pray for in those first two words. Sanctify them. Sanctify them. The Greek word is hagaizo. H-A-G-I-Z-O. Hagaizo. Uh, and the root meaning, there are two senses to this word. Two senses in which this word can be interpreted. 
these meanings are not mutually exclusive. There is definite overlap, but there, there is enough of a distinction that we're going to point both of these out. The first sense of sanctify is the idea of being set apart for God. Set, being set apart for God's service. It's the idea of consecration or dedication. We remember the Old Testament. Maybe some of this will, will come, uh, come to mind in the Old Testament how the temple of God was consecrated to God. Therefore, it was holy to the Lord. Right? It was holy. Not in the sense it was pure, it was clean, but no, it was considered set apart for the Lord. Aaron and his sons were consecrated, set apart for the priesthood from birth. Aaron, the sons were. Even John the Baptist was from birth. I, Jeremiah, from birth, from the womb, God set these men apart for His purposes, for His work. In the Old Testament, you know, things, even animals, even things that were won through war were often, sometimes, consecrated to God and given over to God. You, you fought the Philistines and you got a bunch of their oxen and the, the, the prophet would say, this is consecrated to the Lord. There was slaughter and sacrifice. A thousand oxen to the Lord was dedicated to God, to worship of God. In the New Testament, this idea of consecration refers almost always to people, to individuals, not really things. Where the idea is people being separated from this world and set apart for the purpose of serving God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18 do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord, what union has Christ with Belial? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? Therefore God says, verse 17, Go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing then I will welcome you. Same idea is in First Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9, 1 talking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into light. Called us out, separated us for a special purpose. Final example is found in all the, the saints that are found, the word saints that are found in the New Testament epistles. 1 Corinthians 1 1, 2 Corinthians 1 1, Romans 1 1. Paul writes and says to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Ephesus. Now, the word saints, same root word, hagaizo, saint, sanctify. The idea is not so much holiness, but people who are set apart by God. The idea is less holiness, but more being set apart. Uh, uh, an example of that is in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, Paul calls them hold, uh, saints, and then a few verses later, he rebukes them for acting carnal, for being so sinful, being involved in all kinds of immorality, 
and sin and depravity and evil in their midst. He rebukes them and corrects them for false teaching. Wait a minute. How can they be holy, pure, and unpure, impure, and sinful at the same time? Because the initial saints is referring not again to some kind of moral purity, but being set apart. So the idea is New Testament, all Christians, we have been set apart from this world. And we've been dedicated to Christ, dedicated to God, consecrated to God for a special purpose, for a special work for God and for God's kingdom. This idea that we're special, we're set apart. You know, there's the special forces. You know, I learned recently that even the Marines have special ops, right? Marine Expedition Forces, MEFs. Not a good name, but hey, you know, they're a special office for the Marines. And these guys are, are even set apart from the Marines, the leathernecks that do amphibious landing. They're the first to go, last to come out. And even in that group, there are a special group of men that do all the more special work of risking their lives for, for our country. That's the idea here. The first idea of, of Hagaizo is that out of the world of people, God has set apart a people set them apart for a special purpose according to His will. That's the first sense. The second sense, a sense that is more familiar to us, is holiness. It's purity. Idea of being cleansed from sin. It is to be made holy inwardly. It is living a life uh, of outward righteousness that is prompted by an internal transformation by the Holy Spirit. A non-Christian only has the old nature and is a slave to sin. Even though he has free will with his freedom, he always chooses sin. But the believer, because he is given a new nature, though he is encased in a body of sin, sin of flesh, because he has a new nature, he, ha- he is able to live in holiness and in righteousness. The Bible is clear that Christians must be holy people. The greatest appeal for our holiness, for our sanctification, is found in God's attribute that He is a thrice holy God. Leviticus 19:2. Moses commanded Israel, "Be holy." Why should I be holy, God? Because your God is holy. Peter picks upon this, and he said he wrote in First Peter one fourteen through six fourteen through fifteen, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your formal ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, quoting again Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy because God is holy. It is, the idea is not just uh, the absence of evil, absence of sin. It is not enough. The sanctification is not just the absence of sinful behavior. But sanctification is added upon that. It's the presence of righteousness. Not just absence, but it is the presence. In John 17, Christ prayed for the disciples that 
God would keep them from evil. That's the negative part of sanctification. The positive part is verse 17, sanctify them. It is not enough that Christians live lives avoiding sin. And in fact, that's not Christianity. We do not live our lives on the negative. Oh, I can't do that. I shouldn't watch this. I can't go there. I, I don't say those things. That's not how Christians live. Christians flee sin, run away from sin. At the same time, Christians are known by what we pursue. By our positive behavior, we pursue righteousness. Our practical faith is not defined merely by what we do not do, but in a far greater way, our faith is is defined by what we actually do, by what we accomplish, what we carry out. Psalm 34, 14, Turn away from evil, the psalmist says, and do good. So many are utterly sinful, are, are not utterly sinful, but they are not sanctified. Does that make sense? So many live a moral life, a life of negatives, yet there is no positive realization of righteousness and holy zeal. Isaiah chapter 1, God calls the nation of Israel, and He says, Hear the word of the Lord. And He rebukes them of their hypocrisy, of their false religion. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my evil, cease to do evil. There's a negative, verse 18, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. And that is Christ's prayer here. He's praying that believers are, are set apart for God's purposes. But more than that, that they're, they're pure. They're righteous. They're holy. But that purity is not just an absence of sin, but is a presence of true godly zeal to do God's will. Well, for the remaining time that we have, I'm going to go back to John 17 again and again in weeks to come, revisit sanctification, hopefully go to 1 Corinthians 6, look at sanctification from that angle, go to 2 Timothy 2, and look at sanctification from that angle. But for the time that we have with us, time that we have for now, maybe share three to four truths that we learn from this prayer. Three or four basic truths. Our time, let me just get, get to the first two. First one is very basic. First one is very basic. Number one, sanctification and pursuit of sanctification is the way believers are kept from evil. The pursuit of sanctification is the way believers are kept from evil. Now, we all know this prayer, the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. Right? Do not lead us into temptation. We pray that prayer. John 17:15. Christ prayed for us. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but, they, but that you keep them from the evil one. Believers, we need to understand the simple truth. 
Deliverance from sin and temptation does not happen supernaturally. Does not happen miraculously. God doesn't send angels to you and to me. God doesn't send signals. Thunder and lightning or earthquake or visions or or signs to, to deliver us from evil. That's not how it happens. So many believers, I guess, are involved in all kinds of gross sins, involved in and participating and watching and listening to all sorts of sinful, evil, depraved uh, things and temptations. And all, all the while, what are they doing? They're waiting for God's leading. They're waiting for God's guidance. And they pray, lead me not into temptation. And Lord, when you lead me, I will follow. And all the while, they're immersed in sinful things. Saying, that's what Christ prayed. That's what Luke 11 says. Christ prayed for me that, I'll, that He will lead me away from temptation. And then thereafter, several days and weeks and months and years of living in sin, waiting for that moment of deliverance, they're still in the same place, involved in the same sins, marred in the same activities. And they think, what's wrong? How come God's not leading me away from this temptation? This temptation is so strong. Right? I fall into it every time. I guess I just got to keep on praying and hope that one day God will deliver me from evil. That is not how it works, brothers and sisters. That is not how sanctification works. Do we not realize that the way we are kept from evil is by pursuing sanctification ourselves? Ourselves. That's the prescribed way. By being holy. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee youthful passions. Run away. What are you waiting for? God has led you. God has already given you direction. It's clear. Run away from youthful passions. Anything that would ensnare your heart towards sin. Flee like a fugitive. At the same time, it is not a mindless running away. You are running towards your pursuing righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Find other men and women who are running away from sin and pursuing righteousness and you do the same thing with them. That is how God keeps me and God keeps you from evil. It is not some supernatural way. 2 Peter 1, 5-10 Peter said, Make every effort. Make every effort to add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former, former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. From this prayer, the first thing, simple truth, is that this is how God leads us from temptation and sin. 
second truth we learn, second truth we learn, is that God's ordained means, God's ordained plan of saving the world is through sanctified people. It is through holy people. You know, this day and age, um, there is so much material on evangelism and missions. Scores of books are written today and are continuing to be written about evangelism. And a great majority of these books are, is foc- are focused on methodology, on the how, on the techniques. And a lot of these books are focused on uh, the marketing uh, idea, consumer mentality. And they want to market the gospel in a way that would cater to the unbelieving mind so that it would be more palatable for them and they would embrace it and follow Christ. That's not God's ordained means of saving the lost. We see here in John 17, 17, God's ordained means is through sanctified believers. It is holy believers, pure, set-apart believers. Right? John 17, 17 is, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18, As you have sent me, I have sent them into the world. You see the connection between holiness and evangelism, holiness and mission. He emphasized our holiness because only holy people will save the lost, will impact this world. Think about it. Right? This is how the church began and church grew in the New Testament. It was not through mass meetings, huge gatherings, through special leaders and pastors. Christianity from its inception spread throughout Asia Minor and afterwards throughout the world almost completely as a result of the influence of individual Christians. Individual Christians. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, their method was that of cellular infiltration. One person at a time. The gospel spread. People got saved. Churches were established and built up. How? One person who was holy meeting another person who was unholy. And by the integrity of their lives, they shared the gospel. And that single individual turned and became a Christian. And that person grew in sanctification. And that person in turn went to another person. Whether it be a family member, a husband or a wife, or children, or aunt or uncle, or neighbors or strangers, and with his or her holy life, shared the gospel. And that other person became a Christian. And one by one by one, gospel spread. The church was established healthy and strong. Consider your salvation, your testimony. Think about it. How did you come to Christ? That's so right, Paul said. I came to Christ because of my mom. I saw my mom and her life was serious for Christ. And she shared the gospel to me. I will never forget my mom as I consider my testimony because the gospel came to me not through the TV, not through a track, not through an impersonal radio show. God came to me through an individual who lived a holy life and shared the right gospel. What about you? How did the gospel come to you? 
Right? I might even take a poll. Was it through a large gathering? Was it through a drama? Some kind of special performance? Right? Was it through some special event or outreach? Was it through some powerful or popular speaker? Some big name guy came in and he said all these things and you were just so convinced by this one sermon? Or was there this one person in your life? Maybe it was your mom or dad. Maybe it was your neighbor. Maybe it was your youth pastor. Maybe it was your Sunday school teacher. Or maybe it was your friend. And there was something distinct about this person. What was that distinction? This person was separate from the world. And holy, pure, separate from sin. And when this person shared the gospel to you individually, it was powerful. It was powerful. This person personally reached out to you and he or she made the Bible come alive by their character, integrity, and purity of their life. And they personalized the gospel by personally pleading to you, will you repent? Will you trust the Lord? And you said no and they called you again. Right? They knocked on your door again. Will you repent? Will you turn away? Will you believe and trust in Christ? I would say, 99% of believers here would say, Yes, Pastor James, I was saved by an individual. God used a holy individual, not some impersonal speaker from the pulpit, not through some TV or radio program, not through a large gathering in an impersonal way. No, God used an individual to save me. Christ understood this. Christ understood this is His plan to impact the world. There is no plan B. These 11 men, that's it. And if they're going to be successful in their mission to make an impact in this world for the gospel of Christ, what they need is not some method, it's not some technique, it's not some program, it's not some money, not a TV station. What they need is sanctification. What they need is to be set apart from this world and to the Lord and set apart from sin. And therefore, He prays for them, for their purity. For, For the Lord, for our Lord, the supreme thing in the matter of evangelism is that His followers be truly sanctified. And this is the hard work of the church. That's why it's easier to focus on programs. It's easier to focus on methods and techniques because we can do that. The most difficult thing in the church is to help people become sanctified as believers. That's the most difficult thing. This is the most grueling, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking work of pastors, shepherds, elders, and leaders of the church. You ask me, you ask your shepherd, you ask your Bible study leader, what's the most difficult thing about being, a, being in ministry? They'll tell you. It's you, right? <laughs> They'll tell you, trying to help believers grow. Believers mature. Everything else is dessert compared to this main work. Our flock shepherds come to the elders and they say to us, James, Bob, we can't do it. And my flock, they're impossible, right? Man, these guys are tough, they're stubborn, they don't listen. They're so immature. They will never be sanctified, never grow. The task is too big for me. I'm about to quit. I can't do it. So Bob and I are like, get back in the ring, right? (laughs) We we quote Rocky. 
go the distance, right? Don't give in. Just hang in there. Christ is coming back soon. Just out-endure them. Outlive them. Right? That's what you can do. Why? Because sanctification is so difficult. That's why the church neglects it. In fact, I'll tell you a secret. It's easy to get people to do evangelism in the church. It's easy. It's easier. It's easier to get people to serve the church, give to the church, even evangelize, even go to missions. That's far easier than getting people, helping people grow in their walk with Christ. I was involved in a parachurch and we employed various effective methods to procure such behavior from people using rewards, using shame, by giving people titles and positions, by esteeming from the pulpit certain kinds of practices and quote sacrifices, by promoting people to leadership based upon the results of their ministry. It is fairly easy in an organization like a church to get people to do certain things. Right? All you managers out there, all you employers, you guys understand what I'm saying, right? It's easy to squeeze people to get, get them to do things you want them to do based upon these social pressures. But in that ministry, all the while, these people are doing all these things, going out witnessing every day of the week, and yet their lives were in shambles. There, was major, there were major sins in their lives, there were character flaws, there were lacking integrity, there was rampant hypocrisy, all of it was ignored, all of it was overlooked. Why? Because... That's much easier than really doing the work of sanctification. But this is the mountain that every believer must climb. If you want to be effective in ministry, you know, husbands, you want to impact your wife and wash her with the water of God's Word, and you want to have a, a bride who is pure, holy, and righteous. If you want to have children that are godly, who love the Lord and love you, if you're a minister and you want to have your friends or your people in your Bible study, even your flock, mature in the Lord, it is this way. If you want to save your family members, you want to save your neighbors, it is, there's no book out there, there's no technique, there's no secret program that you can, you can learn, implement, that will ensure such things. It's a sham, it's a lie. Christ prayed for sanctification because this is the God-ordained means for you and I to make an impact in this world for the gospel. So though it is so difficult, so arduous, each of us must make a decision to, to, to overcome this mountain and walk this long, long journey towards sanctification. Alright? Well, got one more point, but I'll make that my intro for next week. We'll close our time. I would like to give everyone a moment to respond to the Lord in private prayer. Um, consider what is your greatest need right now? What is the greatest need you have before God in your one life that God has given to you? What area of life are you uh, given up, have you given up in terms of sanctification? You know, are, you, uh, are you focusing on ministry, focusing on external things because you want to run away from the difficulty of personal growth? May the Holy Spirit grant you grace to pray to Him. And he might grant you much grace and mercy so that you might grow and be an answer to Christ's prayer.
Holy Father, we know that Christ prayed to you for our sanctification because it's not up to us. Really, it's not ultimately up to us, our effort, our desire, our will. It's up to your mercy, your grace, your goodness. So, Lord, all really we can do to start is to pray to you and ask you, God, will you show favor to us? Will you show favor to your people and our church? Oh, Lord, would you purify Cornerstone Bible Church? Would you, oh, Lord, sanctify us? We are undeserving of such grace. We're undeserving of such a privilege. So therefore, Lord, from the back row, as it were, with our heads bowed low, our hands beating our chest, say to you, O oh God, forgive us. But would you help us? Would you help us to be separate from this world, from the mundane things of this world that we would be we would rise up to the special purpose that you have called us to and that we would turn away from the temptations and sins of this world and we would practically urgently seriously lay both of our hands on the plow and begin our begin the work of growing in our salvation growing in purity and holiness Lord, may we just trust in you. May we not look to ourselves and make personal commitments that we will do this, we will do that. No, we won't. Lord, may that not happen. Lord, help us just fix our eyes on Christ, on the finished work that He He accomplished on the cross. Help us to see the power of His resurrection. And may we trust in Christ that the one who began the good work in us will complete it that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith, that he who began a good work in us will not abandon us here now, but will carry it on to its completion until we're fully mature in Christ. Oh Lord, we pray the prayer that Christ prayed, and we humbly request for these things. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.